Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Assistant Professor in Exercise Science at Carroll University, Tim Suckermel. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So a part two with Tim Suckermel, which has been a very long time coming. So a couple of things have changed for Tim since last time we spoke. So he's changed roles, he's changed universities, um, but still the same interest in his on the research side of things. So we kind of build on our our previous episode, which the number of eludes me uh, at this moment in time, but is mentioned a couple of times in the in the episode. But his research interests continue in the uh, in the area of weightlifting derivatives. So a big portion of this episode uh, talks about that, but also its uh, its impact on those that work with team sport athletes, not necessarily uh, lifting athletes. So if you are in a team sport or an individual sport, this is definitely applicable to you as well. You don't have to kind of be a weightlifter to get some, or a weightlifting coach to get something from this episode. So superb episode from Tim. His research knowledge is absolutely on point. So uh, plenty to take away from this episode and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So for a part two, almost Two years of the day, I have Tim Suckermel, who is now the Assistant Professor in Exercise Science at Carroll University. So welcome to a part two, Tim. Oh, thanks a lot, Rob, for having me. Thank you for uh, giving up the time and, and coming on. So it'd be good to get a bit of a, a backstory on maybe pre-Carroll University and the transition and then what you're doing now, education-wise, research-wise, and just give a bit of background on you. Sure. Uh, prior to uh, the current position that I'm in, so as you said, I'm assistant professor at Carroll University in exercise science. But in addition to that, I have strength and conditioning uh, responsibilities, working with primarily the volleyball team here, but also track and field. Prior to coming to Carroll, uh, so this would be my third year coming up here, crazy to think about. Um, I was at East Stroudsburg University for one year and actually did my doctoral work under Dr. Mike Stone, Brad DeWeese, and uh, Dr. Kimmy Sato at East Tennessee State. And keep going farther back, uh, during undergraduate, I was at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, and then I did my master's degree at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. So kind of coming full circle, um, growing up in Wisconsin, going to school in Wisconsin, you know, leaving the nest for a while and then coming back. So happy to be back in the current position and, you know, things are, things are going well. Nice. What's Wisconsin like, Tim? Right now it's hot and humid. Um, you know, yeah. I was okay. joking with a couple people at the National Strength and Conditioning Conference uh, this last week that we might be the only state in the in the u.s that can have a range of about 130 degrees so it can get up to 100 here but it can also be negative 30 so uh oh, wow thankfully it doesn't all happen within a week but uh you know it's not uncommon for us to have snow one day and then be blazing hot the next day so i love it yeah okay so this is the heat of the summer heat of the summer right now yeah yeah middle of the summer yeah. um and then it'll start cooling down probably in a couple months Nice. So it'd be good to get a bit of a, a general a general overview of your kind of research interests and then where that where that started, where that kind of passion came from, 
and where things have kind of moved along for you and, and where they are now would be nice. Yeah, uh, so most of the research that I that I currently do has to do with weightlifting movements and their derivatives. Uh, the, and really what this stemmed from was, this goes all the way back to being a, a baseball player and that, you know, we had heard about this power clean exercise, uh, you know, and snatch variations, but um, never was really good at those movements. And, you know, we didn't, I didn't really have a good coach to, to be taught them. So what ended up happening was after I went to grad school, um, I worked under Dr. Glenn Wright and originally proposed a project that he shot down. So disappointing at the, at the, at the time, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he brought up this idea of uh, eliminating the catch phase um, between a hang power clean and uh, talking about using a jump shrug and a high pull. So we took it and ran with it, and um, it's kind of the you know the rest is history. But we uh, we have expanded that research um, from doing just acute cross sectional comparisons to now doing training studies. I say we. Uh, I collaborate a lot with Dr. Paul Comfort at Salford University, um, where we just finished uh, a study looking at the long term training effects. Um, eight weeks of training in season with catching or not catching that was recently published in JSCR ahead of print. And currently what we're doing is a, a follow-up training study to that. So we increase the length. So we have different training phases that are being touched on uh, strength, endurance, max strength, and a power phase. But uh, we also um, added another group uh, in addition to catching and not catching. We started loading the the pulling variations kind of specific to how you could load those uh, pulling variations. So just expand on that. How, what's, what's changed in the, in the uh, load that's been used? Sure. Um, so in the first training study that we used, the catching and pulling groups actually use the exact same load. So uh, prior to any of the training, they did a one RM power clean. And then the variations uh, were a, if the catch group was a power clean from the floor, but also mid-thigh power clean programmed off of that 1RM. The pull group did biomechanically similar exercises, a pull from the floor and a mid-thigh pull, but they used the exact same loads as the as the catch group. So if one group was doing a 60% 1RM, the other the pull group was doing 60% 1RM. So what we did in this current study that we're running is we did we used a force and velocity specific overload and what i mean by that is during the phases where we're focusing on developing more force or maximal force characteristics we increased the load to how you could load a pull and what i mean by that is we went over a hundred percent of one rm of a of a clean variation so something like the mid thigh pull we worked up to doing 135 percent of one rm uh, a pull from the floor ended up being up to about 110 percent of one rm but once we started going through the program we switched to a velocity emphasis and started implementing pulling derivatives such as the jump shrug and the high pull but loaded them really low to maximize that power output based on previous research we did. So in addition to the heavy loads in the maximal strength block, we ended up dropping it down to about 30 and 40% of 1RM in the, um, in the strength speed and speed strength taper. So it was 
quite a, it's an interesting study. Um, just presented some of the preliminary results on that, but uh, we're back in full swing collecting more data right now. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on the preliminary data that you, did you speak about the NSCA? Did you present that? NSCA? I did. Yeah, I was at NSCA. I presented two posters there. And what we did is we compared the differences between a 1RM power clean and uh, rapid force production characteristics. So force at 50 100, 150, and 200 during an isometric mid-thigh pull. And what was interesting about the findings is that the catch group itself didn't really improve their 1RM over the course of the study. The pull group that used the exact same training loads improved their performance to a small to moderate effect. Uh, and the overload group actually increased their performance more than anybody, which was really interesting. Um, that was a, a moderate to a large effect, uh, looking at just effect size. But what was really interesting about it is they also increased their peak for, relative peak force, the highest during the isometric mid-thigh pole. That's the overload group. However, the highest rapid force characteristic adaptations actually came from the pole group and not the overload group. And it's interesting to, to go through and look at that because what they did, because they used the exact same loads as the catch group, they're able to move those loads, in my opinion, faster because obviously you can use more weight with a pole than what you're used to. So um, the ability to produce that force rapidly using a, relatively speaking, lighter load uh, probably resulted in some adaptations in rapid force production. Uh, the second poster that we did, did, it's the exact same study design as we compared the differences between uh, all these groups looking at 30 meter sprint performance and also 10 and 20 meter splits, but also a 505 change of direction looking at the right and the left leg. And what we ended up seeing with that, with that analysis is during the pre to mid test, we actually saw the greatest increases with the catch group um, that really weren't statistically different or practically different from the pull group. However, the overload group at the at middle or at their mid test actually decreased their performance a little bit. Um, and what was interesting about that is if you think about the loads that they're using during the, um, the first several weeks of training, is their volume load is probably higher than the catch and the pull groups. That being said, they probably accumulated more fatigue over that time period compared to the catch and pull groups. But what was interesting is when we came back and ran the analysis again from pre to post, the greatest benefits, with regardless of the, the, the running interval or the change of direction leg, the greatest benefits came from the overload group. And if you think about it, that's when we went through and tapered down. So in our opinion, what we ended up seeing was a, an increased work capacity resulting in uh, a decreased performance early on. However, once they... Uh, recovered and went through the taper, they actually showed the greatest benefits following uh, the entire study. Mm-hmm. So this would, this is moving a little bit cynical, but this would fit the the thought process of many team sport coaches who would jump on that and say, so this is why we don't use the catch, this is why we don't do the catch. Would that back up what they're thinking as well? 
It would support it. Um, I'll never say that we shouldn't catch, but what this does is that it allows us the opportunity to say, look, you can use loads in excess of a 1RM to build these characteristics, but you can also use them to uh, develop those rapid force characteristics uh, when you are using uh, lighter loads. But the whole thing, you know, we go back to the force velocity relationship of all of those, um, all the weightlifting movements, depending on how you load them, you can get a similar benefit um, from a velocity standpoint. And given the velocity based research that we have, you can get uh, some similar benefits depending on how it's loaded. It's not to say only do pulls all the time. It's saying here are some more options for coaches to give, um, to produce those better benefits. Mm -hmm. So in a, pra in a practical sense, you've got to catch on one hand, I've got my hand up here, not that you can see, but <laughs> to catch on one, to catch on one hand, not to catch on another. Do you just want to give us a little bit of context in your opinion, where they could fit in or where they would fit in into a, um, into a, a general program for say a team sport athlete. I know there's so many variables that go on here, but in, in in x block that would fit more that would fit nicely and in y block that would fit more nicely just gives sure, you a context sure. around that if that's possible yeah yeah i'll do my best because like you said there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of variables <laughs> yeah. here but no we we expanded on that idea in that in our scj paper in um 2017 this last year but uh talking about enhancing the force velocity relationship using derivatives um, but what, one of the things that you can do is using a combined method program is you're all, you're always going to be thinking about what characteristics you're trying to be building. So if the goal ultimately with something like a strength endurance, or some people call it a hypertrophy phase is to develop work capacity, uh, you want to be able to use loads that are going to be moderate to moderately heavy. But if you're talking about using weightlifting movements, you want something that's not that the technique isn't going to be compromised. So with a higher volume, such as three sets of eight to 12 or something like that, you may use or emphasize pulling variations, uh, such as a pull from the floor, um, given that the technique of the individual remains. Now, what I will also say with that is because you're using those higher rep ranges, it's important to maintain quality. And this is where the idea of using clusters comes in. So what we ended up doing and writing in the paper was we discussed the idea of doing three sets of 10, for example, but breaking those up into cluster sets of either two or five reps. So five reps, rest 30 to 40 seconds, and then perform another five reps and that's your set so that's one set now and once we move beyond this higher volume once we get into maximal strength uh, and absolute strength kind of characteristics we want to emphasize high forces but also start to develop early rate of force development characteristics so the idea of combining both uh, catching and pulling this is a good spot to do it is for example, you may be able to use something like pulls from the floor, mid thigh pull to emphasize the high force component, but starting to develop the rate of force development component, you may benefit from doing something like a, uh, a power clean or power snatch from the knee. You can do a mid thigh 
power clean. Uh, and the idea is you're starting to focus on rapid force production, but also remember that with those exercises, you're going to load them uh, heavy or light, depending on the characteristics of the exercise itself. A mid-thigh power clean, for example, may benefit you when you're using loads 50, 60, possibly 70%, depending on the person, um, but it'll help you develop kind of that high force rate of force development. Uh, yeah, moving on from that, uh, once you get into kind of your strength, speed, speed, strength, you can maintain that, that uh, combination of exercises where, you know, you may be using, again, there's a slew of these variations that exist, but um, you may start to emphasize more speed strength characteristics uh, with something like a jump shrug or a high pull, given that the velocities of the movements are so high. But at the same time, you want to keep a retaining load. So whether you do it with a pull, something like a counter movement shrug, you may be able to do it with a heavily loaded power clean from the floor. Um, the idea here is that once we get to strength, speed, speed, strength, we want to decrease the fatigue, but also emphasize the rate of force development and power characteristics that we're trying to build. So as we talked about, there's a slew of different variables to factor in here, but um, ultimately, yes, you can use a combination of both catching and pulling, just depending on what characteristics you are trying to build at the time. Mm -hmm. So in, in this scenario, we have many team sport coaches who will say they haven't got the time to teach the whole lift and the catch is the thing that obviously gets removed from the end. And that's given what you've just said, that's all right, depending on how you go about things and which variations you use. But do you, do you actually think that that is a genuine argument for not doing it? Uh, just the, just the time it takes to teach it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I, I can definitely see the argument. Um, you know, I kind of, I kind of fall on that spectrum is that I want to maximize quality training time as much as possible, given that we only have so much time with our athletes. Um, but what I'll say is that if athletes are competent with their pull, you know, we talk, uh, I always mention this in the talks that I give is if the pull sucks, everything else is going to suck too. So we emphasize training the pull first, and once they become competent with that, a novel training stimulus may actually be going to catch it. And But the idea is you don't sacrifice the pull just to catch it. You know, too many times people are trying to perform, especially heavy power cleans from the floor, where they're so concerned about dropping under the bar to catch it that they miss, you know, and emphasizing that the second pull phase, which is really what transfers. So to say that um, how long it takes to teach the catch uh, may, you know, deter some coaches from using it, I can definitely see it, um, but it's also how much time you want to invest in doing it. That's really the argument, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So quite a lot of the examples that you've used there are percentages of 1RM of the full lift. If people aren't doing the full lift, how are we using percentages? What percentages are we working on? It's funny you mentioned that because we just had a conversation with this at NSCA. Um, there is uh, there's more research to be done on this, obviously, um, but and I think a lot of it's going to have to do with the velocity of the movement. Um, you know, for example, if you want to perform a 
uh, you basically want to find the equivalent of a power clean at 80%. What is that percentage of uh, you know, a jump shrug. What's the velocity that happens at that point? Well, you know, that's just one example. But we are doing some research right now on percentages of body weight to see where this maximal power output, uh, just as one example, is actually occurring. Um, now, body weight is obviously going to fluctuate with person to person, but um, there's definitely more research to be done on that, but I would say for those who aren't doing any catching but want to use the exercise, best method would be uh, using kind of a set rep best method. So you end up finding out what they're capable of doing, especially with the heavier lifts, what they're capable of doing and programming off of that. So you end up with a quote estimated 1RM, but um, it is difficult to go and assess a 1RM from a polling variation just because there's no criteria that actually exists. So as always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Tim. So a couple of thank yous. So firstly, thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you want to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, I would encourage you to check out uh, my recent episode with Ian Dunican, which talks about the biomathematical modeling in the back end of the Fatigue Science Ready Band. So that biomathematical modeling can be used uh, by the guys at Fatigue Science to be able to uh, advise those that are traveling across time zones when they should be asleep, when they should be awake, when they should be exposed to light, when they should be um, in environments without any light. So that I used that recently on a trip to Australia, worked an absolute dream. So if you would like to uh, know more about Fatigue Science, follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science and visit the website fatiguescience.com. So just before we do get into part two, massive announcement for two sponsors of the podcast, two long-term sponsors of the podcast. So Forstex and Val Performance are joining forces. So we've got Dodge Daniel Cohen and Phil Graham Smith from the from Forstex merging with and under the Val Performance uh, umbrella. So massive news for these two guys. And I just know that two unbelievable brands, two unbelievable companies will do some incredible things um, in the coming years by putting their heads together and um, and moving the and, and kind of steering the ship in the same direction or even be on the same ship. Um, so massive congratulations to the guys at Vald. I know how much work has gone into making that happen. And I really look forward to seeing the results of that partnership moving forward. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about that partnership, I know there was a press release um, and a couple of words from the guys at Vald and from Dan on LinkedIn. So if you're interested, get in touch and I'll forward you the, uh, I'll forward you the link. But massive uh, congratulations to them guys, both the guys at Forstex and at Vald. Uh, make sure you check them out and uh, see what the partnership's all about. So over to part two with Tim and hope you enjoy. So just moving on a little bit to uh, 1RM testing. I know this is something that um, you've done a little bit of research on as well. Is And it, that kind of falls in line with what we've just said about those that aren't doing uh, the full lift. 1RM testing for non-lifting sports, do you think that's necessary? I know we're in a pre-season phase for a lot of guys, especially here in the UK, uh, soccer and um, and rugby union. And I'm sure there are people out there who are doing 1RM testing. But do you think that's necessary for non-lifting populations? 
Personally, uh, I do not use 1RM testing. Uh, I usually estimate based on set rep best what they're doing in training. That way I can, I'm monitoring where they're at at the time, but also adjusting their 1RM. One of the thing about a 1RM is that it changes, it can change daily. And so, you know, it's this ever fluctuating up or down on the, on the spectrum where it actually falls. But uh, personally, I don't use it. Uh, what we end up doing is if we want to get a, a better idea, we end up doing kind of a, a 3RM within training. Um, the other thing with it is uh, if, you, if people end up doing a 1RM within training, it ends up being a single day, you know, let's get everyone standing around a squat rack and yelling at the, at, yelling at the person, letting them go ham on it, you know, slap them in the face a couple times, you know. But, uh, you know, I do love them videos. Oh, too. oh it's great. Don't take that away from great. me. His technique is always really good too. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, there's, there's so many different methods out there that allow us to get information about the athlete. And especially we can estimate a one RM kind of where they're at. You know, there's a ton of work being done on velocity based methods right now. We just did a paper not too long ago with, uh, Irenu, uh, Laturco and, um, Really what we found is that bar power outputs, you know, using uh, velocity-based measurements uh, are actually more strongly associated with the sprint speed and power performance than 1RM measures. And the fact of the matter is, is that you can use these bar power outputs within the, within the actual training itself uh, when you're monitoring them. So that being said, you can actually get a better idea where the athlete is in terms of their readiness instead of doing 1RM testing. Um, you know, there's, there's... So that would just be a training session, Tim. That would just be a normal training session. No one knows any different that they've been specifically looked at at this point in time. It's just a training session and you've got the data to actually manipulate things off the back of that in the future. Absolutely. And all the, and all the good strength coaches out there will take the take the data, they'll assess where their, where their athletes are at and they'll update the programs accordingly. You know, I think sometimes we kind of get overwhelmed with all the data that we have. Um, Duncan French made a good point in that we don't want, uh, we don't want all this monitoring data to determine what we, uh, what we're doing in training. We want it to help drive the training process, uh, instead of, um, only make the determinations off of it. So uh, the monitoring should be integrated within it. And be because we are monitoring, that may be a reason why we don't have to do 1RM testing. Mm -hmm. So when we are using um, bar power outputs, just want to give us a what kind of protocol may be used um, to, to be able to do that. Obviously, 1RM testing, everyone kind of knows that. But if you're going to use a, a tender or a gym aware or a push band or whatever it may be, how might people go about that? Sure. My, my understanding, and I'm not fully ingrained within the velocity-based literature, but having conversations with Dan Baker and several others, uh, Brian Mann as well, they could talk to this more, more than I could, but really what they're looking at is the mean velocity of uh, mean velocity of the exercise during the concentric phase. And I believe what they end up saying is about an average of one meter per second ends up being approximately what that person's one RM is. Um, I could be completely wrong on that. I really don't remember what the, what the numbers are, 
but um, it seems to be that there is a given threshold that if they are below, that seems to be equivalent to about what their 1RM is going to be. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. So just moving on to another, obviously another um, we are, thing where your expertise lie, and that's back to the weightlifting derivatives. And one thing that I know we mentioned, the, the videos that come out of the guys crowding around the uh, the squat rack and shouting and slapping and doing all that kind of thing, which I absolutely love. But another yeah, thing exactly. that is kind of take <laughs> another thing that you see a lot of is, I guess it's Franz Bosch's um, influences in the weightlifting derivatives, whether that be catching with a split stance, whether that be catching with a split stance on a box. And I was just wanting your take on it. Is it something that people should consider? Like if it is, where and what should they be doing? If not, say not. Just wanted to get your take on it. Sure. Um, catching a split stance, that's go, that goes back to classic weightlifting. Um, you know, you see the, all these black and white pictures of people doing a, a split snatch or a, um, or a split clean. I've never done a split clean, but it just looks painful. Um, but uh, I, honestly, what I would say is that it's not the end of the world if someone has to catch in that position, as long as they're stable. Once we, you know, what we know about those split positions is that uh, they can be uh, very unstable sometimes, and that's that's the kind of the biggest uh, the biggest fear that I have with those is when someone's not in a stable position when they have weight over their head, for example. Um, does it have a place? Uh, it's going to be dependent on the athlete, really. You know, I used to I used to have some athletes who couldn't perform. Um, a, uh, an overhead squat very well actually perform uh, hang power snatches, but actually catch in a split position just so they could have a, a slightly wider base of support. Um, but uh, obviously moved away from doing some of that. But um, it's not it's not wrong to do. It's just uh, it's kind of a unique twist on on the movement itself. Uh, it's the same. I don't want to say it's the same as catching a jerk in a in a split position, but um, you know, you can develop those characteristics from a, a stability standpoint when you are less stable. Um, now, I would also say that, you know, if we move this conversation to doing single leg uh, Olympic movements, the fact of the matter is, is that they, you are less stable when you have a single limb versus multiple. That being said, your force production capabilities actually decrease due to the instability. Um, that being said, when it comes to the, um, uh, the training benefits that you may get, you may actually be limited in your capacity to develop the characteristics that you're trying to train. So when, when you throw a box in there, cause that's one thing that I've seen quite a lot of when you throw a box in there for that front foot to land on, where does that, how, how does that change things? What's the people's rationale do you think behind that? So, so performing the the movement and then landing their front foot on the box. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think I think what ends up happening is we are trying to take specificity way too far in the weight room with things like that. Um, it's not to say that you wouldn't get some benefit just from a motor pattern standpoint, but again, I personally feel like that's what practice is for. Um, you know, we train movements in the weight room. We don't train the actual sport itself. So. Uh, I, I honestly think that it's, uh, it's trying to just take, spe- it's trying to take specificity too far in the weight room. 
And next thing I want to chat about, and I know that this, I know you made it clear before, this is not your, um, not one hundred percent your area, which I, I appreciate you, you saying straight away. Um, but variable resistance training, another thing that crops up all the time, whether it's people using chains, people using bands. Where would what's your take on it? And are we moving? Are a lot of people moving too quickly towards that kind of thing? And if so, why? And but where would you use it? Um, if you think sure. it's beneficial, um, I think variable resistance training. I think we're going to see a lot more research on it in the future. Um, I think the potential that the movements have for us, whether you're using chains or bands, can actually give us a lot of uh, a lot of good benefits. Uh, if you read the literature that's out there, and frankly, there's not a lot of it, um, we usually see benefits in strength and power and possibly in uh, hypertrophy. The idea behind it is that um, we are loading the joints according to their uh, mechanical advantage or disadvantage at a time. So if we just take a squat, for example, we are at our biggest mechanical disadvantage at the bottom of the squat. But if you think about using chains, that's when we are unloaded the most at the bottom, and then it continues to increase the amount of weight that we have as we ascend to the top of the squat. Um, as to your question, when it comes to kind of who should be using it, um, I, I personally feel that people need to be strong within the traditional movements prior to using that, that method. I would probably classify variable resistance training as an advanced training method uh, fact of the matter is, is most of the people who want to use it just because it is a sexy method is they're just not strong enough yet. Um, it's not to say that they can't get benefits from it. I'm just saying that the likelihood of them getting uh, benefits doing traditional training is probably going to be just as good with, um, with people who are less trained. And now in terms of where variable resistance training may fall... Um, I would probably say that you can pretty much fit it in in any training block, but I still think the best benefits that you're going to get are going to be in more of a strength endurance hypertrophy and a maximal strength block. Um, some of the research that's out there, I believe it was Riviere, uh, and I know Lawrence Seitz was on some of that stuff. Mina was another one. But uh, what their literature shows is that you can get power benefits from it. The, the thing that I would probably say with that is you're getting power benefits probably from the strength adaptations that you're getting uh, just because of the high loads that you're able to use with it and not kind of optimally, optimally loading each of those joints. Uh, I would be hesitant to put it in a power block because uh, it probably fatigues the joints to a, to a greater extent as well. More research obviously needs to be done. But uh, at that point, we're trying to move things faster. And when you're using heavier loads, that's kind of difficult. Mm -hmm. So with your, with your coach's hat on, how, I mean, I know this, again, this is a horrendously um, general question, but at what point does that get introduced? Is that like a um, highly experienced lifter? Is that a um, kind of just beyond the novice phase? Where does that fit, do you think? I would probably say a more experienced lifter. So you're looking at a combination of training age, their relative strength uh, within the traditional movement itself. Um, and, you know, some of, some of the elite athletes are obviously going to be able to use it just because of their, um, you know, their 
call it fiber characteristics, things like that. But um, yeah, definitely advanced training methods uh, with the with the athletes that you would use it with. I'd be very hesitant to use it with novice athletes because I want them to develop uh, kind of a more solid motor pattern through the, the traditional movement itself before introducing a novel stimulus like that, uh, whether it's chains or bands. Cool. So where, where's, where's research heading for you, Tim? What's, what's next on the agenda? I've been on your, had a little stalk around your research gate page and a couple of projects on there, which would be nice to hear about that the coming up in the future. Sure. Yeah, we um, we're currently running two studies right now. One of them is the the monster, the training study that we uh, that we're still figuring out with the the weightlifting movements. Um, but the, another study that we're doing is we're following up on some of Paul Swinton's work, where we are looking at variations of different types of jumps. So what we're doing is we're comparing the differences between a uh, hex bar jump, a jump squat, and a jump shrug. So given where the bar is placed and where the load is placed, does that have an impact on performance? So we're looking at that over the cross, uh, over cross several loads, and uh, it, that's really what's going to give us more information about how to load those exercises again without doing a, a 1RM um, because it's based on percentages of body weight. But uh, in the future, to go back to the question you asked previously is um, – with more research supporting what the pulling derivatives are doing, we need to figure out how to implement these exercises if people elect to not do a 1RM of a power clean, you know, hang power clean or anything like that. So we have to find different methods to be able to implement them, um, but also find out best practices in implementing them, such as uh, loading, but also with uh using possible cluster research. Um, there's a lot of different directions that we're looking to go. So uh, it's looking, I'm looking forward to doing it. Um, you know, I'd rather be busy than not busy, but uh, I tend to, tend to do a lot at one time, but uh, we're looking forward to it. And now that uh, we have our new graduate students here with our program, we're, we're looking forward to getting some, some good work out there. Nice. When did the, uh, when did the relationship start with the guys at Salford? That started. Uh, I'm, I met naturally over over Twitter. Kind of had some conversations with Paul Comfort and John McMahon. Um, this was probably back in 2013, and then we happened to run into each other for the first time and meet face to face at the NSCA conference in uh, Las Vegas, where John McMahon's poster just happened to be next to mine. And then um, Paul came over later on and happened to say hello, and we of course had to chat for about two, three hours after that, just because we were performing similar, uh, similar research, but no, we, uh, we've, we were fortunate enough to get an international collaboration grant, which is kind of where this first, uh, recently published training study came from. But, um, yeah, we collaborate on a lot of different projects right now. And so it's nice to be, it's nice to have two different labs running similar studies so that we can supplement our findings. Absolutely. So where can, where can people, and you've mentioned quite a few, quite a few papers uh, during this, the last 40 minutes, where can people, what's the best place for people to get hold of, of all your work? ResearchGate the best? ResearchGate would be the best. Uh, I know I have a link in my, in my Twitter profile for my ResearchGate page. And uh, 
you know, if, if it ends up being that some of those articles are not available for any reason, um, you know, people can contact me either through ResearchGate or by other means, and I'd be happy to get them to them. Perfect. And do you know your Twitter handle off by heart? Yeah, it's uh, at Dr. T. Sukumel. And that's S-U-C-H-O-M-E-L. Correct. Perfect. Well, thank you Most very much, Tim. Most people can't spell that, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. I'm, re- <laughs> I'm reading it. I've got it on the screen in front of me. Although I have got good at it. I know. I think I did butcher it last time, but I'm, I'm getting good. I'm getting good. But yeah, thank you very much for your time, Tim. Really appreciate it. And um, no doubt we will we'll catch up soon. Fantastic. Thank you again for having me on. It was really fun. Thanks, Tim. See you later. Thanks to tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Tim for giving up his time and coming on for a part two and giving us an update on his research on weightlifting derivatives. Also, big thanks to Val Performance and Forstex, who, like I said, are joining forces, and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So, episode 200 is coming up. A little bit of a surprise, and it's also a surprise to me. Um, what's coming up in, the, in the episode 200 we've got a couple to go before then um, and I hope to uh, speak to you next week